Think Red Ink Ministries presents The Words of Jesus series with Don C. Harris Hello my friends, welcome once again to the Words of Jesus series and the words just keep on coming, the red ink just keeps on flowing uh, last time we were talking from chapter 46 where Jesus was explaining to Peter that his understanding of who exactly Jesus was, one of the most important things that we can understand in this world, is who he is. And uh, that is evidenced not by what we say with our mouth, I believe in Jesus, uh, not by um, our, um, our outward profession of, of our going to church and taking on denominational names and all these kinds of things, but uh, by uh, actually doing what he said to do, which is the most important thing I can think of as anything that needs to be done. Uh, the most important thing is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Do you realize that if he is who he says he is, many of us are in serious, serious trouble? Because it's not just like an employee of God who gives us commandments, and tells us how to live and what to do and, and the way things are. This is the Son of God. Um, it's kind of like um, adding nepotism to the, uh, to the supervisory of, uh, on a particular job. If he's your supervisor, he's got authority. If the supervisor happens to be the son of the man who owns the, owns the company, he's got more than authority. <laughs> There's some, there's some kind of connection there that makes it even scarier. And I think that if we understand that Jesus is not only the Son of Man, in other words, our brother, but he is the Son of God, which means he is God's Son. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Something that we can look forward to. At the end of this, uh, this discussion, where uh, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus made it clear to him and the rest of the disciples, see that thou tell no man that thing. See that thou tell no man that thing. What thing? That I'm the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Anointed One. This has to be revealed of the Father. And if you blow it by going around and telling people this, or giving them enough facts that they can feel like that they can mentally deduce this, uh, you're actually thwarting God's plan. God's plan is to reveal the Son to His people. Now, in between, I was telling you that uh, we arbitrarily removed an interruptive paragraph from this so that you could see the continuity of what He was saying. And that was that um, uh, this, this is a revelation from God and that this is, this is to be the duty, uh, if, if you want to call it duty, uh, this, this is the Father's pleasure to reveal the Son to His people. But in between there, there was an interrupter that I think takes people off track and, they, and they're just not really allowed to return very comfortably to, to get this entire thought. So, thus, I, I remove it as I read it so that people can understand the subject of the sentence, which is the revelation of God. But let's look at the interrupter for just a moment. He says, and I say unto you, he, said, he says that, uh, that my Father which is in heaven has revealed this to you. And he says, and upon this rock, what rock? 
this rock of revelation knowledge. It's the, the rock is the, re, the revealing of Christ to a person individually. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Remember he says, and I say unto you that thou art Peter. Well, the word Peter in Hebrew is actually rock, stone. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, I've even read some things that have, that have insisted that uh, Peter is not uh, a very uh, nice thing to call somebody. It was, uh, it was not a nice name at all. It was, it was saying that they were thick or they were hard-headed or that kind of thing. I don't know, if, I don't know how much validity that has. But um, Peter, he, he was saying that, I say unto you that, that you, are, you are necessarily a rock. You are Peter. But let me tell you about a rock that we all have to uh, work toward and get in line with. And that's the rock of revelation knowledge. He says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Look, if, if what we have in Christ, if what we... Uh, if, if how we have educated ourselves, how we've come to the conclusions that we've come to, if that is an education process, listen, that, if somebody smart can convince you of something, I assure you, friend, somebody smarter can convince you of something else. It's just, that's just the way it is. Uh, some of the smartest people I know are some of the dumbest people I've ever met. And, and why is that? Because they get their information from outside of them and they bring it into themselves and add it to themselves. They're in total in control and command of, of the information that comes in and out of them. And at will, at their, at their particular liking, at what pleasures them the best, is usually the decision that they, is how the decision is made as to what they believe now or what they believe then or what they're accepting or what they're rejecting and they pretty much filter everything through their own brain. We talked about the revelation of God uh, recently and in, in, in shows just recently that uh, where the Lord kind of bypasses language when he speaks to us. It can't be put into language I don't think that even if we heard the language of God that we would be able to develop a language from it or speak the words that were said to us, but we do know exactly what he's saying. When he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Brent, it's not that one is stronger than the other. I mean, I, I can understand why you would say that or why you would think that and probably harmless to think that. But... When he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, friend, they cannot prevail against it. Because, you know, when somebody just knows something, when something's been revealed to somebody, all the words in the world can't erase it. It just can't seem to do it. Uh, because it came to them in another way. Satan doesn't have these kinds of powers. Um, you know, I, I love where C.S. Lewis is... Uh, speaking as uh, screw tape to his, uh, his little nephew Wormwood, teaching him how to tempt people. He says, you know, we get accused a lot of putting things into people's minds when truly our best work is done by keeping things out. And uh, I think that's true. When we spend a lot of time 
putting things into our own head, um, we are keeping out revelation. We have to, th this has to be in every facet of life. Have you ever seen a mechanic or a plumber or a, a guy who mows lawns for a living or a financier or a CEO of a corporation or anybody in whatever it is they do and they, they move to the top, they just float like cream to the top of their profession? Why? Because they're educated? Most cases, no. Because they have some innate ability to do what they do. They understand the way this works. Uh, a mechanic who understands an internal combustion engine is 10 times more valuable than a mechanic who just looks through a manual and says, you know, if this is the problem, then replace these parts. And you see, this, this is how we are supposed to live. There's certain things that I understand that I've never been taught. There's certain things that I've been taught that I don't understand. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to really seek revelation in, in every area of our life, as a matter of fact. And so he says that on this rock, this rock of revelation, this is how I'm going to build my church. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you realize at this particular point, God is empowering the church, in this case Peter, and in, in a protracted case, even us, if these things are revealed to us, um, and, and they should be today as we read these things, that there are certain things in life that we have a tendency to hold on to. Uh, and one of them is our own hurt. When people hurt us, um, you know, they've, they've done a terrible thing. And uh, some of us uh, are intent on figuring out a way for them to pay for whatever it is they've done that's supposedly wrong. And um, he's, he's telling Peter here, do you want the keys to this kingdom? The keys to this kingdom is to live in, in a right relationship between you and the Father. The only way to do that is for you to live in right relationship with one another. You hang on to these problems. You hang on to your grudges and hang on to your unforgiveness. And you, know, you just take control of your life. Let me tell you what's, what's happening. You're creating a situation between you and the Father that was, is going to go nowhere. This is not going to work. You might think it's going to work, but it's not going to work. He actually tells a story about uh, a man being forgiven of a great debt and then being caught by the public exacting a debt and a payback from a friend that owed just a penance compared, uh, 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 compared to what he owed this king. You know, just, just nothing. And the king actually took this guy back in and reinstituted his debt. Jesus is saying, you know, if you can't learn to forgive one another, neither will my Father which is in heaven forgive you of your debt. Well, so much for once saved, always saved. You know, the, the, the truth is, is that if you don't have a tender heart of forgiveness towards your brother, you don't have that, and you can't forgive them, friend, you've got no promise at all that you're going to be forgiven when you stand before God. No promise at all. Well, I think if somebody's really saved, I'll tell you what, let's see if we can 
conjure up a Christianity that doesn't need adjectives thrown in front of the word saved. Really saved, really a Christian, really good, really wholesome, really righteous, real. Can we, can we develop at least some kind of understanding about Christianity, about regeneration, that doesn't require those little adjectives being thrown there? That comes from funerals, by the way. Well, it does. You know, you, you got somebody, you know, that's laying there in the casket and everybody knows he was a scoundrel from one end of his life to the other. And somehow some preacher somewhere wants to preach him into heaven and uh, talks about him being born again when he was six years old and he came to the altar and that kind of thing. And they, Come on, preacher, do you really believe that? This guy was, this guy was horrible. Well, he wasn't really saved. Well, you know, the trouble with that is, is you just go to thinking about it and you think, well, if he's not really saved, I wonder if I'm really saved. Well, you know, they'll, they'll give you anecdotes for this. They'll give you medications for this. But uh, it, I just think that we ought to have a, a better understanding of reality than that, that we have to add those kinds of words Here's the best way. You want to be forgiven of God? Forgive your neighbor. You want to be forgiven of God? Let things go. Let them go off your back. Just forget it. I'm not talking about being indifferent. I'm not even talking about ignoring wrong. I'm talking about true forgiveness. Many times people don't forgive one another because they've never been forgiven. They don't have no idea. They have no idea what it's like. As time goes by, we're going to be talking about uh, forgiveness and, and that particular story that, that I was just uh, referencing and, uh, and learn what forgiveness actually is. Forgiveness is not necessarily willful, willful forgetting of a person's transgressions. It is uh, fully acknowledging them and, um, and forgiving them anyway. However, what I'd love for you to see here is, is that, that Jesus is offering Peter some... Um, uh, a power uh, as, um, as, as he offers all of us, as a matter of fact. And that is that, you know, if you, will for, if you have the ability to forgive these sins of people on the earth, I have the ability to forgive them from heaven. How would you like to, you know, actually affect absolution in a person's life? How would you, you know, if a person sins against me, if a person steals from me, he's violated a commandment of God. But do you know if I forgive him, the Lord says, I'll forgive him too. You ever think about that? You see, if a person, if a person offends me somehow, but he hasn't, really, he hasn't really violated a commandment of God, he might have sinned against me. I have the ability to forgive him. But, you know, God in that particular situation... It's not affected because he didn't really violate any of the Ten Commandments. He just did me wrong on a deal or something like that. I know you can extrapolate, you know, from thou shalt not steal, you know, to a guy doing me wrong on a real estate deal or something somehow sold me a, a car that was a piece of junk or whatever else. I know you can extrapolate, you know, what he did as a you know, sin against the Sixth Commandment if uh, or well, I'm sorry, that's, that's murder. But I'm sure you can extrapolate what he did against the commandment somewhere. I understand that. But 
in reality, you didn't violate a commandment by doing me wrong. You might have sinned against me. You might have sinned against you. might have sinned against somebody that I love and, and care about. But he hasn't sinned against God. God in this particular situation is saying, you know, if he steals from you, he not only sins against you, he sins against me because there's a, there's a commandment against stealing. If he takes your wife, he's, he's not only sinning against you, he's sinning against me. But, you know, if you can forgive him on earth, I can forgive him here. If you want to hold on to these grudges, if you want to not forgive him, he's not forgiven here either. Wow, does he really say that? I think it's very clear. I think it's very clear here. God, this is, you have to understand that, you know, this is a whole system that the Lord is, is trying to establish on the earth to make life here worth living and, and, and not leave us powerless to whatever comes our way or whatever happens to us. So this little interrupter, I wish it was someplace else. I wish it was after the story. But uh, there's a lot to be seen here, too. But what I didn't want it to do for you was interrupt the, the, the full idea of the revelation of God. Let's move to chapter 47 in our little book here. Uh, Jesus began to teach his disciples, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and raised again the third day. Now, as, I, as I've said, I believe that, the, that the, the latter end of the ministry of Christ was a stopgap measure that was brought about because the, the plan from the beginning was for the Lord Jesus to come to the earth, be accepted by God's chosen people, be instituted as, or be you know, installed as a king, and installed as high priest uh, of, of all Israel, and then as high priest give his life for Israel in some way that we don't know. We can't know what, we can't know what didn't happen, but um, I believe that the plan was starting to fall apart. I think that this is an indication that uh, Jesus was making it clear to his disciples Things are falling apart here. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be slain and raised the third day. I think this is one of the first introductions. You'll find this in Luke 9 and Mark 8, and it's, and it's way later in Matthew in, in like chapter 16 uh, that this starts to occur to him, and he's sharing this with, with his disciples. Uh, Peter rebuked Jesus, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Jesus replied to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. This was Jesus' philosophy that he was, that he was saying to Peter. This is, this is my philosophy. Things that come to me, they come to me with a the Father is well aware of what's going on here. And we're not going to stand up and we're not going to fight the devil and we're not going to shake our finger in his face or wave the Bible at him and try to chase him off or, uh, you know, bind him. You know, that binding and loosing scripture that we just walked away from. Uh, you know, I hear preachers do this all the time. They get on the, 
uh, on the radio or television and they're binding the devil. Well, guess what? They're going to have to bind him again tomorrow because he obviously is like Houdini or something. These preachers bind him and then all of a sudden he has to be bound again and again and again and again. I mean, there's one preacher that I know of that binds him every day. And he binds him every time he comes on the radio. There's seven times a day. This guy, this is one slippery bugger if this is the case. But see, that's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is to let the Father handle these kinds of things. And uh, you know what? We're just not supposed to, It's not our duty to, uh, to, to inject ourselves into whatever plan God has for us. Vengeance is mine, he says. You know, you, you, we don't, I don't need you fighting these battles. I can, I can take care of all these things. And he tells Peter, you know, what you're doing is, is you're actually facilitating Satan at this point by causing some unrest in me, saying that uh, all of a sudden we're going to use our own physical power to overcome this situation that's uncomfortable for me. Peter, that's not me, man. That's not the way I do business. And I don't want you doing business that way. You're just facilitating Satan at this point. Then Jesus called the people before him and said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Why is this being said now? This is Jesus' advice all the time to many, many different people in many different situations. He has to deny himself. What does that mean? Well, he just got done saying to Peter, You don't savor the things of God. You savor the things of yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself. Yeah, but they're going to kill you. That's why I say, take up your cross. You're going to have to take up your cross. What does that mean? You have to be willing to die for what you believe. How do you know you're willing to die for what you believe? Don't mistake being willing to kill for what you believe for being willing to die for what you believe. It's two different things. So don't get those two things confused. And so what I want you to do is be like me. And here it is again. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Do what I do. And he says, now listen, if you are insistent on saving your life, if you are insistent on saving my life, first of all, butt out. It's my life. I don't need you fighting my battles for me, Jesus is saying here. And you ought to feel the same way. If you're insistent on saving your life, you know what's going to happen to you? According to Jesus, you're going to lose it. Not only are you going to lose your physical life, but you very well could lose your spiritual life as well. So he says, whoever, lose, whoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life, be willing to lose his life, be willing to be evil spoken of, be willing to be carried away, be willing to die for what he believes. He said, and if you'll do that for my sake... You will find your life. And he says, what is a man advantage if he gains the whole world and loses himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they shall see the kingdom of God. Now here you have Jesus saying that pretty soon my ministry is going to be over. 
He, and he said in one place that all things concerning me has an end. So there is an end to what I need to accomplish here. And we're getting close to that end. But uh, you, need to, you need to realize that I don't care what Satan has, you know, if he has some wild ideas in store for me, it doesn't really matter because I'm here on a particular mission and I'm going to fulfill that mission. Now, at this particular point, I don't think Jesus knew all the details of what was going to happen to him. And I think that when it was made very clear to him, I think that's what threw him on his knees in Gethsemane when he was crying out, Father, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't worried about his own skin. He wasn't worried about, you know, oh, this is going to hurt. Um, you know, they're going to they're gonna beat me with, with, a, with a whip or whatever else. Friend, he was, he was sweating and he was uh, sweating as it were, the Bible says, great drops of blood in that garden saying, let this cup pass from me. Why was he doing that? Because he was, he was seeing that the purpose for which he was sent to the earth to redeem Israel, he saw it may very well not happen. That everything he had done to this point had been totally thwarted by Satan and Satan's people on the earth and these religious leaders that hated him without a cause, that were causing all these problems, that were plotting his death, they were trying to circumnavigate. Listen, if Satan was going to try to, uh, uh, to steer Jesus off of this course, what all he had to do was see to it that he was murdered before he could give his life as a ransom for many. Because you see, remember when Jesus says, my life is my own? No man takes it from me. I give it up of myself. Buddy, that was Satan's cue right there. I know how to make this. I know how to fix this. Because the blood, it's the blood of an innocent that takes away sin. It's the blood of the lamb. It's the one that's not done any wrong. The one that couldn't do wrong if it wanted to. It's the blood of the innocent that takes away the sin of the world. It's not the blood of the man who is regretful. It's not the blood of the man who is murdered. Matter of fact, the Bible makes it clear in the Old Testament about how to handle murders on your property. And, and, and I have to understand that that blood of a murderer is a, is a dirty and foul thing. Uh, the blood of the murdered, I'm sorry, the blood of the murdered man is a dirty and a foul thing. And Jesus could see that if he's murdered, if, he's, if this isn't a voluntary sacrifice on his part, this whole plan is going to be thwarted. And he wasn't sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was concerned about his own neck. He was, he was sweating great drops of blood because he felt like that all that he had accomplished to this point was not going to save you. That's what had him sad that day. If you wonder why he's crying out, it was for you. All right, time is gone. I'd love to hear from you. Write to me. Don at thinkredink.com. You're thinking red ink? Perfect. Keep doing that. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Don C. Harris of Think Red Ink Ministries. Email 
Don at thinkredink.com. That's thinkredink.com. Join us again for the next episode in the Words of Jesus series.